everyone. Thank you for joining us online here at Destiny. If you haven't had a chance to visit our campus, we would love for you to come out and join us for our 1030 service. But if you can't, you can always watch us online at destinyokc.com. And while you're there, you can watch any of our past messages, see any of our upcoming events, or read pastor's blogs. Also, don't forget to follow us on all of our social media platforms right here. And now, here's this week's message. So you guys got just a taste of like old school liturgy this morning. It's good to kind of change every now and again. Before I dive in, I'm supposed to tell you things, and I'm kind of I'm, a couple of things, and I'm trying to decide if that's going to run the moment or or not. I'm just going to shoot for it, see what happens. But um, you know, we uh, sorry, we we've entered a season where we're again trying not to simply attract people, but we're trying to be the church, and be the church here, and be the church when we go. And uh, part of that has meant we uh, are not again trying to advertise in the way people tend to advertise and attract people in the way um, most might, in, at least in America. But we had a, something happen, just kind of was handed to us. And so we saw the favor of the Lord in it. And that is, uh, Caleb had reached out to us and asked us if we would host a concert uh, with the band We the Kingdom. And so we have decided to do that. And uh, so July 12th, which is when our class was going to start on how to grow deeper, which has been postponed one week. It'll start on the 19th. We have the concert in here, July 12th at seven o'clock. So I would just, you're gonna see all of that and you know, every place we encourage you to come. I would also need, you know, we weren't planning on having, there's probably, you know, could be eight to 800,000 people here. And uh, what we'd like to do is be really hospitable. And so we need your help. So if you're interested in planning on coming that evening, would you be interested in helping us serve by welcoming people, by uh, greeting others? We have a lot of people gone on vacations and things like that that week. So if you're interested in that, there's a sign-up sheet right outside to volunteer. Would you consider doing that to help us out? The other thing is just a reminder that the class on how to grow deeper has been moved to the 19th, starting at 7 o'clock. And I hope to give you a little insight into that. If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them and take them to Matthew chapter 5. We've been in a series entitled, You Are What You Eat, and Pastor's been hitting it pretty hard, huh? Yeah, yeah him, and, uh, him and Tracy are out traveling uh, as a family for, their, for her birthday. I think she would probably not like me telling everybody that it's her birthday. But, uh, that's not, yeah, anyway, their birthday. Too late, yeah. I want to talk to you about a very serious issue that we've been wrestling with really for the last three weeks as pastor's been preaching. I can almost feel it sometimes going on inside of people. And it's a tension that I don't think we've done very well at trying to communicate and, and uh, walk out. And that is the concept of judging. Judging. There's places where the Bible tells us not to and there's places where the Bible says, is there not one among you wise enough to judge? There seems to be tensions and conflicts throughout the New Testament, and I'm hoping to, in the context of what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, to help us maybe better understand that. So I need you to put your thinking hat on with me. I'm going to make you think, and I challenge you a bit, because I, 
we're going to have to make some distinctions that are important, all right? So here we go. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to begin with verse 1 and read to verse 11. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, would give him a stone? For if he asks for, or asks for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we really need wisdom in how to apply it and how to live it. So we pray, Lord, that you would keep us this morning from the opinions of men, and that you would speak, that your scriptures, that, your tr- that the, what you are saying in your holy scriptures would rise to the top and we would see it. Father, I pray for our children right now. I pray that you would bless them and give them a heart to know you and to walk in your ways. Give them joy unspeakable and full of glory. I pray for those that are serving them. May you anoint them and bless them. And Lord, in here I pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, um, I used to have odd jobs during the summer. I played a lot of sports in high school, so I couldn't work a lot during school because it seemed like every season there was a sport with practice afterwards. So the summertime was when I, had the, I went to work. And I did all kinds of odd things. One year, like, I painted bulldozers. I mean, just imagine being in a full paint suit in a metal building in July. Yeah, it wasn't, you know, I, I don't recommend it, but, you know, it was a job. Well, one year I was a... Uh, a bag boy or whatever at a local grocery store called Town and Country. It's in Atoka, and it was way more country than town, obviously, <laughs> right? And I was in the back. I hadn't been there but a couple of weeks, and I was in the freezer stocking the, you know, freezer items from behind. So I could see through the glass, but I'm in the freezer area. Does that make sense? And I'm stocking it and, you know, kind of putting stuff uh, in and around the corner comes a gentleman pushing a cart, and he gets to the very end, and there's some things on the end, and I see him grab something, and put it in his pocket and keep going. Now, he doesn't know I saw him because I saw him from inside the freezer. So I got to decide what I'm going to do. So I walk out and I walk up to him and I said, Sir, um, I was in the freezer and, and I, I don't want there to be many, m- any misunderstanding. I, I saw you put something in, in your pocket and it could have been an accident. Would you mind just handing me that and I'll take it to the front and they can get it, you can get it when you check out. And he said, Are you calling me a thief? And I was like... Sir, I'm just hoping there's no misunderstanding, like, I, you know, trying to, he goes like, you, and he, this is what he said, don't call me a thief, you honky. <laughs> yeah, it escalated, as you can imagine, and managers were brought in, but it hit me. 
I was doing my best to try to help this person out of a deadly situation, or a potentially serious situation. Don't judge me, you honky. Oftentimes, the people most judgmental are those who feel judged and are trying to judge the person back to who they feel to be judging them. In other words, there's a reciprocity to judgment that is just ugly. What does Jesus mean by judge not? We have to put it in the context. Look, I just, we'll talk about this when we talk about how to grow deeper. I don't know how to say this real well and I keep figuring out ways to say it. Part of learning to grow in the scriptures is learning to understand or try, at least seek to understand through prayer and through reading and through asking other people, dialogue with other Christians. What is the Bible? When, when this was written, it meant something for the person who wrote it and it meant something for the person who read it. That make sense? Whatever that meant then is what we need to know first. We can, we can mean, it might mean more now, but we need to know what it meant then. Because that, that's the truth to that. And we, we need truth. We want to grab a hold of it. So we got to put it this in context. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 has been, uh, it's a sermon on the mount, right? In Matthew 5, he calls his disciples up the mountain where he's going to teach them. And Matthew 5 through 8 is kind of the sermon on the mount. And Jesus is talking about how you're blessed with, you're with him in the kingdom of God, the Beatitudes. Then he talks about a righteousness that will exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. The word righteousness in Greek is um, diakosune, and, and Plato and Aristotle used righteousness long before Jesus did. And it meant this deep inner goodness, like where, the, where, where goodness comes from inside the human soul. Does that make sense to you? We tend to hear righteousness in the Bible and think about it, it means keeping the law perfectly. But that's not, when Jesus says that his disciples will have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, it's because the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness is all on the outside trying to keep the jot and tittle of the law, but do not have that deep inner goodness. And he's saying, my disciples are going to be transformed from the inside out. And then he begins to deal with not things in the law per se, things in the heart. The first thing he deals with is contempt and removing contempt from our heart. Then dealing with anger. Then dealing with obsessive desire or lust. Then he deals, begins to deal with what it is to, to be married and how to work through that. And then he even says, what good is it to you? What reward do you have if you love those who love you? I say, love your enemies and be like your father in heaven. Anybody else want to go, wait a minute. Like, look, God's like God. I'm from like Oklahoma. Like, I don't know how, why would I, how are you going to put me? Be perfect like your father in heaven's perfect. We're going to love. And that's why he starts the next chapter, chapter six. He starts, so let's talk about prayer because you guys are going to need some help. Right? When you fast, <laughs> when you pray, when you give alms, here are some practices you're going to do in order to help form this deep inner goodness in you. This is a whole sermon, and you've got to think of it like a whole sermon. Then you get to chapter 7, and most people read what we just read as if Jesus is like spitballing a bunch of simple ideas. But I want to hope you see, if you trace it, it has a logical flow of thought all the way through the chapter. But let's start first. When Jesus says, judge not, what does he mean? When Jesus says judge not, he means that we should abandon the deeply human practice of condemning and blaming other people. That we should and we can become the kind of person whose heart is free from condemnation towards others. Now, this is fun, I can already tell. Everybody's getting, what is it? What Jesus is not saying is that we shouldn't make distinctions between things. 
You see, words matter, and when we use words like judging, I don't know what you necessarily you hear when you hear it, right? Uh, but we have to work through that. And one of the things about going deeper, one of the things about learning to think well about something is learning how to make distinctions that, most, that many may not make because they're there and they're important, right? And we want to think well about something, not to be smart. We want to think well about something so that we can practice it. We can apply it to the truth. We can walk in it, Right? And so we have to make some distinctions here. We tend to think about judging, and, and it means multiple things. For here, we need to separate two things. The, there's a difference between making a distinction between whether or not something is good and evil, whether something is holy and unholy, whether something is profitable or unprofitable or unhealthy or healthy. That's making a distinction. That is normal with any body of knowledge. The more you grow in any kind of area of knowing something, any expertise, you learn how to make distinctions others might miss. A dentist knows how to make distinctions distinctions some other people don't know how to make and know the difference. A mechanic knows how to make distinctions, right? I remember one time taking a car to a mechanic and he said, well, is it more of a, how do you say it? Is it more of a screech or is it more of a knock? And I'm like, you're asking me to distinguish the sound? I don't know. It just makes noise and it's not supposed to make noise. But he wants that distinction. The more you dive into an expertise, the more you're able to make distinctions other people can't make and then bring solutions to them. What Jesus is not saying is that we should give up making distinctions about what's good and evil. He's not saying that. What he is talking about is giving up condemnation. Condemnation is the final evaluation of a person's worth or character. And it's reserved solely for God. So we're free... To make distinctions. We have to make distinctions. You can't live life without making those distinctions. That's part of it. But but as we go through that, we are to make those distinctions, but we are to stay away from condemnation. Now, my problem is that sounds really good on paper. It is in living that out that becomes, as we're going to find out, this narrow road of helping people. This entire chapter, at least the first 11 verses, is actually about how to help people. So let's walk through it a little bit. Judge not, right? We are to, um, we are free, we are still to make distinctions. In other words, that we can prove it, I can prove it to you. Jesus would say judge not, then in verse 11 said, if you then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. <laughs> Consummate evil is a judgment, right? And then he would later say in, just a, in verse 20 of the same chapter, you ought to judge a false prophet and know them by their fruit. Is it good or bad? Make a distinction, Correct? So we ought to judge, but then not to judge, right? We're not to condemn, but we are to make distinctions. I want to just quickly keep there, because we're going to come back to Matthew 7. Go with me to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 4. I want you to see something. I think a whole class on judging, when, where, and how, would be a great class. The Bible actually says when we are to judge, where we are to judge, and even how we are to judge. But we never taught that. At least I never was. I guess maybe you have. Maybe you went through a bunch of classes on how to judge well, right? I don't, I didn't. Uh, it's going to be a long morning. Cool. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let's read in verse 1. This is how one should regard us. This is Paul, servants of Christ, uh, stewards of the mysteries of the kingdom, uh, mysteries of God. Notice that steward. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time... Before the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his uh, commendation from God. All right, quickly. The context is stewardship. Everybody say stewardship. 
And if, if you got stewardship of something, then you have to, the goal is to be faithful with it, correct? That's the context, stewardship and faithfulness. In other words, here, if you have stewardship over something, you have authority to make judgments about it. Just like any other person's judgment, your judgment's got jurisdiction. Oh, this is fun. We're, if you have stu- judging is really an extension of ruling, of governing. And we are to reign in this life. We're to govern. You know what the Bible actually says the thing we're to judge most, the New Testament? Ourselves. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Judge for yourself. Judge of yourself. Did it come from a pure heart? If we spend more time doing that, we might have a little less time to go around condemning everybody else, huh? So my point is we have to work through this. What does it mean to judge? And here Jesus is uh, helping us understand that. First Corinthians, Paul's saying, look, if we have stewardship of something, then you have a right to judge it. Now the thing that's really on the docket that they're talking about is whether or not his apostolic ministry is legitimate. And what Paul's trying to say is it's too early to tell. That's essentially what he's saying. I have a ministry. I'm going about it. I don't know anything that I've done that I've not repented of, right? But then he says, that still doesn't equip me. Because, uh, that just still doesn't mean I'm off the hook because I'll have to stand before God one day. So I'm not going to try to judge whether or not my ministry has been fruitful just yet. I'm going to wait till I get to the end, and then we can decide. But when people take this verse and quote it to you, you only the Lord can judge me. <laughs> it depends on the context. What are you talking about? You might be helpful to find out that God's already made a bunch of judgments you should know about now. So you're not surprised when you get there. Right. And he's told us what those judgments are in the Bible. Yeah. Are you tracking with me? Yeah. All right. So the context is stewardship. There'll be this final judgment. Now here, people are going to get concerned about that, right? Hebrews 11, it's appointed once for every man to die and then to be judged. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 actually says eternal judgments, plural, eternal judgments is an elementary doctrine the church taught. We're going to stand before God and be judged. That's the reality. And that might be scary, but think about it. If there is no final evaluation of what you've done in this life, then your life is meaningless. But the very fact that God will hold you accountable one day means everything you do has meaning to it. Our life is filled now with not only meaning, but continuity. That's what meaning really is. Something continues. Um, The word car, C-A-R. Those three letters arranged in that way, car, only have meaning because it points to something that is real, and that's an automobile. Does that make sense? The meaning is in the continuity. Our lives are going to continue after we're dead, and therefore it will affect eternity, and therefore our actions hold meaning. That's a big deal when your life feels hopeless. It's a big deal when you feel like no one sees you. God does. And we always take it as some negative you're going to stand before God, don't you know? Like you, there, ought, there should be a holy fear. But the good news about that is that I'm going to stand before God because my life matters to God. Yeah. That's good news. So Paul is not saying never judge because in the next chapter he'll say, hey, there's a brother among you who's having sex with his father's uh, wife, incest, basically. You should gather together and expel him, remove him. That's a judgment. Now, why don't you go back and go, well, wait a minute, Paul. We don't judge until the appointed time. Not for Paul. Because that issue is not about condemnation. That issue is about making a distinction between what's holy and unholy. What's sin and not. That's why you would say in the following chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, is there not one of wise you who can judge? Why are 
Christians going to court is there not anybody wise enough in the church to make sound judgments? What, to make the distinction between what's good and evil and right and wrong and helpful there. Does this make sense to you? So we are to make distinctions. By the way, side note, this is extra, not even my point of my sermon, but I thought I'd bring it up because when you mention expel a brother, everybody gets a little nervous. So look, uh, traditionally that doctrine, excommunication, removal of fellowship, let me just, it is an act of grace. Excommunication is not, hey, we are kicking you out. Excommunication is, you've been found to be out, and we're offering you a way back in. They don't, uh, they're not to expel the brother because of his sin. They're expelling the brother because of his refusal to repent. Like, even to get into this thing, you have to admit you're a sinner. Like, that's not the problem. The problem is, we're trying to live a life that is holy. Therefore, there has to be the presence of repentance. And so they're expelling him not because uh, they're making a final evaluation of his worth. No, Paul's saying, do it that his soul might be saved, that he might come back. He's been found to be out. Jesus is not Lord to him. Invite him back. All right, that's extra. It's grace. I know that's hard for us to understand. Condemnation communicates to people, to someone that at a deep and almost irredeemable way, they are bad. What Jesus is prohibiting us in this passage is total justifiable exclusion. He prohibits us from making a condemnation of someone to such a degree we can justify why we should exclude them from us. Or we should justify why I can withhold love from them. Jesus will never let us withhold love. But oftentimes we move into condemnation as a way of communicating why we're going to withhold love. I'll give you an example. If there's somebody I know who's an alcoholic, the, the, name or, you know, the, the name alcoholic only informs me on how I can help him or her or what my love might look like towards him or her. But if I think that just going to that person and helping them see that they're an alcoholic is somehow going to change them, I'm naive, correct? Anybody met with addicts? It's like, most addicts end up, I heard a guy say one time, I never was an alcoholic until I quit drinking. And that's when I realized I was an alcoholic. You know, oftentimes, those labels, but if I was to say, I remember a guy in church growing up as a kid, he would use the phrase, that that good-for-nothing drunk. That's condemnation. And that's what Jesus is rebuking us for. Good for nothing drunk means they're always going to be a drunk. I'm making a final evaluation of their character. And that's reserved solely for God. That's not for me. So we can make judgments about the situation, but those are to help inform us how to help in love. They're never to be justifiable reasons why we're going to exclude love. And that's essentially what condemnation does. Then he says there has to be this reciprocity. The measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. Condemnation, as humans tend to do it, is usually filled with some degree of contempt and anger. And um, Jesus has already warned us about getting those things out of our hearts throughout the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, condemnation we give others, uh, the condemnation we give to others often turns into shame, and shame uh, begins to turn into self-loathing. In other words, condemnation trains me to see the world and people in a certain way, and here's the issue. The moment those eyes turn back on me, I can't stop it. So be careful about how you might condemn people around you because that same lens that you're seeing and naming things, it's gonna get turned back on you. 
And shame is a dimension then of condemnation that reaches into our very souls. Self-condemnation often fuels our self-rejection, which causes us to wish to be someone else, someone other than we are. But the truth is we have to start where we are by admitting who we are if we're actually going to change. So what shame often ends up doing is keeping us in a repetitive cycle of hopelessness. I mean, just think about it, given the last three weeks and the context we've been talking about. The first moment shame entered the world was the way a human felt about their body. Adam and Eve saw that they were naked and felt shame. Somebody asked me what I would tell someone who wants to have a a gender transition. What would I say to them? The first thing I would say to them is I would say, I just want you to know I know what it feels like to really wish to be someone else. I know what it's like to have such self-hatred. You just wish you could be different. And the first thing I say is, hey, you're just not alone. You see, sometimes we can get caught in arguments and we miss what's going on underneath the whole thing. And, and Jesus is trying to teach us how to help, which means if we're going to help be helpful, truthfully uh, helpful, we've got to get down there into those things. And we're not doing that by simply by, by accolades and bumper sticker phrases. We have to work with the person in front of us and start where they are. And that's what Jesus is going to teach us. This is why uh, this internal shame is, a, is why discrimination and hate for people at the level of their identity is so destructive. But it's also why the kingdom of God offers so much hope. You see, the kingdom of God says, come as you are, broken and all. Come experience being loved by a good God in the midst of your brokenness. While Christ takes upon himself your shame and your condemnation, so now you are free to stare at your own brokenness, but in light of God's love, and now your energy can be used and partnered with God's grace and God's love to become a different kind of person than you, than you now are, all in love and in mercy. Yeah. Amen. Jesus is a genius. It's like swimming out to somebody who's drowning, and when they're drowning, that's when you're going to try to teach them how to swim. That's not going to work, is it? You're going to get the worst person they got when they're scared like that. They're going to try to stand on your head. Like, they don't care, right? But that's not when you go, hey, ease up. We need to do the ba- you know, backstroke, right? What you, what you don't understand is when people are deeply covered in shame, they're scared of everybody. Everybody's a potential threat. And Jesus knows that if we're going to, he's going to actually heal us He's got to find a way for us to come and see our brokenness without feeling that shame. And he does it by pouring out all the condemnation on the body of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's why Romans 8, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God took that sin and put it into the flesh of Jesus Christ. So when we condemn others and that condemnation turns on to us we have a bunch of options we can do really only three we can adjust our behavior to it which sounds really good some people do but most people don't we can live with the shame and all of its effects which normally turn into uh, a very uh, hopeless existence but then the third option which is the one we mostly choose is we enter into self-deception and try to find a way to avoid it and usually pushing shame down and not feeling it, it's like trying to push a beach ball to the bottom of a pool. It's going to come up somewhere else and with more force. 
And it's going to come up in things like perfectionism, procrastination. It'll come up in things like rejection of authority or passive aggressive behavior. It'll come up in fear and hatred of others that are different than us. It'll come up even in physical symptoms. It must be dealt with. And that is why, listen, this reciprocity to condemnation, condemning others and how it turns on us, this reciprocity of condemnation is what makes condemnation a strategy for helping other people utterly useless. And that's why judge not. Because it doesn't help anybody. Making a condemnation like that, I'm not making a distinction between what's right and wrong. Making a condemnation doesn't help anyone. It's useless as a strategy. So then Jesus will continue to teach us. So he'll move from there to the uh, speck and log in our own eye. Now I have heard this. I don't, know how, I don't know how you've ever been taught this, but let me just give you a couple questions. Do we really think Jesus is trying to say, hey, don't correct anybody because we all got our stuff. Do we really think Jesus is saying, you're going to need to re- reach some perfected sanctification if you're ever going to correct people. Do we think Jesus is saying, you better get everything out of your eye before you go blabbing your mouth about other people's stuff? No, look at the context. With the, uh, it's actually in verse, uh, it's at the end of verse five. You hypocrite first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to help your brother. The context is how to help them. And he need, we need to get something out of our eyes so we can help better. The context is not some general sense of, of, of uh, condemnation. Well, we all got our stuff, so nobody correct anyone. That's not what he means. He's encouraging us to help others, but he's given us some things about it. That's why it's interesting. Why, do you, that, why does he call somebody a hypocrite in this passage? Are you a hypocrite for trying to correct someone if you have your own problems? No. What does Jesus mean by it? Well, many theologians throughout church history, including Calvin and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, pointed out this. This is a quote from Bonhoeffer. Condemnation is the log in our eye. The existence of condemnation in the heart of Jesus' disciple is a sign that we have not fully embodied the goodness of the kingdom of God. For condemnation, he says, obstructs our vision of the other. Condemnation is blinding where love is illuminating. You see, we have to remove this, this thing of condemning people so we can see more clearly how to help people. And my concern is we live in a world where condemnation and judging, uh, those distinctions aren't made real clear and it's a very slippery slope. And so what do we do then? You remember uh, John actually said it in, in the Gospel of John, but he also repeated it in 1 John. He actually says to be, I mean, he, he, John actually makes this point that if we say, Everybody say, if we say. If we say we know the truth but do not love, we are a liar. I just want to hammer this home. The existence of hate in our hearts towards a people or a person, that is the existence of condemnation in our heart, tells us that we have not properly embodied the very truth of the gospel we're claiming to defend. There is no way to champion the truth of Holy Scripture with hate and condemnation in your hearts. If we think that's the case, we've deceived ourselves. So we must then deal with our own condemnation. Bonhoeffer would point out, when we condemn others, we become blind, but not to their sin. We see that pretty clearly. 
we become blind to our own evil and our own need of grace. And then what ends up happening is we withhold from others the very grace that we've received ourselves from God. And condemnation then begins to work against the gospel. And that is why when Jesus goes to tell us about how to help people, he starts by dealing with the deeply human problem in our own heart of hating and having contempt for others. He wants us to start there as we move towards helping others. Now, just to be clear, Paul actually jumps on this and makes this clear. I don't really, um, yeah, I'll give it to you real quickly. In Galatians chapter six, would you put that passage up? I'm not gonna read the whole thing. Galatians six, one through five, I think it's in your notes, about if anyone's caught in a transgression, you are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Just quickly, Paul gives us four things about correcting people here that I think would be really helpful. Number one, he tells us we shouldn't correct people unless they're sin. Everybody say sin. Now, sin, that's different than somebody being irresponsible. That's different than someone making a mistake. That's different than someone being young. That's different than someone being ignorant. It's trespass against God's law. That's different. And oftentimes, well, you get it. We have to just be careful about that. If it's not clear whether or not it's sin or not, we must give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, the next thing he tells us is that correcting others is for those who are spiritual. I love Dallas Willard's definition. A spiritual person here is someone who has lived in the wisdom and love and grace of God for a tenured of time. Because the third thing he tells us about correcting others is correction is not about straightening people out. It's not punitive. It's restorative. And it's redemptive. And that's what he brings us to the fourth thing is we have to have humility is a precondition to correcting people. The one correcting needs to be aware they could easily have done what they are correcting the other person for or worse. And the, listen, the removal of self-righteousness and superiority is essential for wherever these two things are present, self-righteousness and superiority, restoration is difficult, if not impossible. So we must deal with it. Everybody all right? I feel like I'm having a good time. And, and that, okay. Hey, I mean, I would take these things that, you know, Galatians, it also works for parenting, by the way. You might want to look at that. But anyway, removing condemnation from our hearts then positions us as the best place possible to help others. So Jesus is not saying that we need to become a person with some exalted perfection so we can correct others. No, the first thing Jesus teaches us about helping others in the kingdom of God is removing any and all condemnation and contempt from our hearts that we might help the other see clearly. That we might see the other clearly in the view of God's grace. All right. When I grew up, I grew up Baptist. Any, well, you know, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. <laughs> uh, we used to have the phrase, you know, um, to hate the sin and love the sinner. You guys remember that? And now that's kind of gone on, on hard times. But um, a great theologian who is still alive today, he, he writes about that, the fact that this phrase is no longer culturally acceptable. And I just want you to hear what he has to say. The fact that this concept, hate the sin and love the sinner, has become culturally unacceptable only shows that we as a culture have lost any identity of the self as a spiritual being with a real inner substance. I am my actions, we are told today, so how could you love me and hate my actions? But that will only turn back on us and condemn us worse than before and create more perpetual hopelessness. We are not the sum total of our actions, and that's the good news, part of the good news of the gospel. Though we are always responsible for our actions, we are much more than our actions. We are eternal beings who are living in God's world. 
This idea that I am my actions is not, listen, take, take it out of somebody who doesn't like the statement and put it in your own context. It is, it's deadly to us because we all have done things that we don't like, right? We, that, that happens and you're probably going to do it again, right? They're going to do something like that again. And the point is we have to have some separation. We must always be responsible for actions. That's not saying that we are the sum total of our actions and that's good news. That offers hope to the world. We cannot outperform this inward shame. We cannot, you cannot get a, a societal acceptance of something. Uh, you cannot get enough societal acceptance of something to calm the inner shame that we feel. There's not enough accolades to quiet it. There's not enough um, performance I can do. I can't get you to agree with me enough to quiet the shame I feel. It must be loved out. I must be loved in the middle of my shameful parts, acknowledge them in the light of God, and God actually loves the hell out of me. He loves that evil, that thing in me. He pushes it out by loving me in the midst of my brokenness, not trying to go around it. And that's my point. Trying to get other people to feel better about the thing I feel shame about won't actually help. You can get it all you want. It doesn't change the shame inside we must be saved. We must be delivered from it. There is a person that must touch us. There is a God that must heal us. And that's the good news of the gospel. Yes. This is the narrow road that we have to walk in helping people. We have to walk in discernment, Sorry, making distinctions about what is right and wrong, what's holy and unholy, and true and false, without getting into the other ditch of condemnation. This is a narrow road the church must learn to walk if we are to hold salvation out for the world, which is one of the things we're called to do. So let's talk about pigs and pearls right quick. <laughs> I'm gonna have to take a drink because this is gonna be fun. <laughs> Has this been helpful? I really don't care if it's been entertaining. <laughs> it's been helpful. That's all I hear about right now. I'm trying to do my best, but this is a big topic with a lot of different parts. All right, so Jesus first helps us deal with what we might call condemnation engineering. I'm gonna engineer condemnation, hoping you change. That doesn't work, right? Now he's about to talk about compulsory education or forced discipleship. I'm gonna put all my good stuff on people and fix them. Woo, because I love them. Oh, this is gonna be fun. When Jesus says, do not put your pearls before swine, or your holy things to the dogs, it's often interpreted like this. Don't talk about or put your, the gospel or spiritual things in front of people who only have contempt for it. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> well, look, the problem with that is, is it's like not true. The problem with that is, you can't get, if that's the definition of pearl before swine, you put something really valuable and somebody has no idea of how valuable it is. If that's the context, you can't get more pearl before swine than God becoming a man and stepping into the world in which we kill him for it. You can't get more pearl before swine. That statement is like actually saying there's certain people who are unworthy of the gospel. Well, there is. Everyone's unworthy of the gospel. You can't get more pig before swine than God becoming man and we crucifying him, if that's what that means. He, the context is not worthiness. The context is helpfulness. What does it mean to help? It never helps the pig to give him a pearl. 
They can't nourish themselves on it. It doesn't help a dog to give them a crucifix or a, a Bible, something, I'm trying to think of something holy, but you get my point. It doesn't help a dog, they'll turn and devour you, he says, because the point is helpfulness and you're not helping because what you're doing is not giving them what, the, what is nourishment at where they are and what it is that they need. So if we're going to help people, we got to remove condemnation, and then we got to realize that pushing our pearls upon people is not going to help them either. I oh, oh, I just stepped off into that, didn't I? So look, at the look, let me put me put it this way. Um, again, the context is not worthiness but helpfulness. Pigs cannot digest pearls. That's why they'll turn and devour you because they're still hungry. You haven't started with what the person needs. You started with trying to get them right. If we're going to help others, we've got to start from where, what it is that they need. And listen, usually people don't even know what they need. Normally what they tell you they need is not what they need. Right? I mean, my son's 13. He's already thinking about driving. He's like, Dad, when I turn 16, I'm going to need a new truck. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> right? What you need is to feel accepted. What you need to feel is important. What you need to feel significant. And I'm telling you, you think a new truck will do it, but it won't. Come here. I love you. You're my son. You're significant for all these other reasons. You see, we, we don't just, we, underneath it, what's happening? What, what, what are we trying to get when we say we need something? Because we think whatever, you get it, whatever, we is, whatever it is we think we need, we think it's going to get us something else. Let's start there. What's that something else? And we help people. Notice that this whole context, right? Remember the, the previous passage about wood and the speck in the log. Everybody Okay. I know this is hard, but listen. He doesn't say, if you're going to help people, stop, you know, don't, we're not going to engineer um, condemnation. But then he starts about seeing, because part of the way that we help people is not about getting them to modify their behavior. We help people by helping them see the truth more clearly. Right. And we have to help them see the truth more clearly by removing their own log of our eye of condemnation, but also help them get down into their vision, not just their behavior. We spend so much time on trying to get people to change their behavior, we never get to the vision of why that behavior seems like a good and right thing to do. How do you see the world if you think this is a good thing? And is that truthful? And can we help them with that? Am I communicating? We, we tend to go like this. If you'll give me the remote control of your life, I will control you, and we'll jump through all these hoops, and when you're done, I'm going to give the control back because now you're changed. God has paid an awful high price for us to have self-determination. And part of the way that we be a representation of the gospel in the world is by not violating that self-determination that God has given others. But speak the truth in love. Help them see. How can they see more clearly? Are they seeing clearly? And you know what that normally requires? It normally requires some sort of conversation and struggle with the other in which we both come to a better understanding of the truth. Okay, uh, helping people see. C.S. Lewis actually writes in his book on four loves, which I recommend if you're a parent, his book on four loves about the family is, is brilliant, but he writes this. He said, I've been more impressed with the bad manners of parents to children than I ever have of children to parents. Parents treat their children with an incivility which offered to any other younger person would have simply terminated the acquaintance but the child can't terminate their parents. They are, the parent is dogmatic on matters that, that the child understands more clearly. They impose ruthless instructions, flat contradictions. 
They ridicule the thing that the young person takes seriously and they make insulting references to their friends. But we love them so much, right? Everybody all right? I'm, I'm talking to me, not just you. And that's part of this. It's the very goodness of the pearl that, that makes us think because it's so good that of course our attitudes and our intentions and how we're going about giving them this pearl doesn't really matter because the pearl's real good. And Jesus is saying that's not the case. We still have to check our attitudes, our intentions, and how we're going about it. Pushing our pearls on people or forced education is born from the idea that the problem is ignorance and the solution is education. But the Bible is clear, the problem is evil in the human heart and education alone will not fix that. God must work in people's hearts. Yes, we can have conversations about truth. Yes, we can get into meaningful uh, conversation and dialogue, but at the end of the day, God's transforming heart. It's the problem is, is deep in that heart. So, we must be careful then um, never to confuse the fact that we, are, we belong to Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. We don't possess the truth as ours. We possess Jesus. And hopefully Jesus possesses us. And therefore there's something to be said there. So the gospel, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, is not ideology because ideology creates fanatics. The gospel is reality. The word gospel means good news, right? News is something you report because it's news because something has happened. The gospel is not, hey, hey, there's something for you guys to do. The gospel is, hey, this is what God has done in Jesus Christ that changes everything. And faith is really coming to bold confidence in the fact that God has acted on our behalf. That God has acted in the world. The gospel, the good news, is something we report to people. Now, it comes with all kinds of implications. But if we think we possess it, then we're in danger of being deceived. So I need to begin to land this plane. What we're actually doing with our, when we properly condemn people, right, with our condemnation engineering and the wonderful solutions or compulsory education on them, more often than not, is they're taking others out of their own responsibility and out of God's hands and trying to bring them under our control. The underlying rationale, though often not conscious, is if I can control the other person, I can help them change because I love them, but we're not respecting the self-determination God has given another human being. And this is what Dallas Willard writes. As long as I am condemning my friends and relatives or pushing my pearls on them, I am their problem. They have to respond to me. And that leads to their judging of me right back or snapping back and devouring me like Jesus said the pigs would do. But once I back away, this is what he says, once I back away, maintaining a sensitive and non-manipulative presence, I am no longer their problem. And as I listen, they do not have to protect themselves from me and may even open up to me or see me as an ally or resource. Now that person can sense their problem to be the situation either they have created or possibly themselves. But now, genuine communication and real sharing of our hearts becomes an attractive possibility because I am no longer the problem they're trying to get away from. Okay. So we don't give dogs what's holy, but then the last couple of verses, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. 
that context is still helping others. We read that and the only thing we think of is prayer. He's not talking about prayer at first. He's actually talking about how do we help people. We enter into conversations where we ask. We seek out their heart. We keep knocking and inviting them into hospitality. We keep asking and we keep seeking and we keep knocking. Jesus only gives us two positive things to do here to help others. The first is we enter into dialogue with them where we ask, seek, and knock, but then he turns that into ask, seek, and knock of him in prayer. We enter into loving conversation, honest, non-manipulative conversation with people, and we pray. In other words, listen, the brokenness and sinfulness of ourselves and others ought to bring us to prayer and intercession, not condemnation. Our discernment must never be perverted by condemnation. It must be preserved in love. Look, I need to end. So would the, would the ministry team come? And uh, uh, Let me just end with a story. I probably could have just told the story and sat down, huh? But <laughs> yeah, you're not getting out of here that early. If you've never read the story of um, Rosaria Butterfield, you should check it out. Rosaria Butterfield. In the late 90s, uh, Rosaria Butterfield was a professor at Syracuse University, an English lit. She taught queer theory. She was a lesbian and a feminist. She led the camps. Uh, I mean, she led parades. She led her, uh, I mean, she taught a class called Queer Theory at the University of Syracuse. She actually wrote out, was very, uh, very loud against promise keepers and things like that. She was not just a, not just an atheist, she was a militant atheist. She just wasn't content with herself being one. She wanted other people to be one. She wrote a book called The, most Unlikely, uh, the Secrets of the Most I Unlikely Convert, because now she's married to a Presbyterian pastor, a mother of three children, and an author. And she writes about what changed her. And what changed her was a meeting with another man named Ken Smith. Ken Smith was an old Presbyterian pastor who read her article about promise keepers called her and she wouldn't answer, so he wrote her a letter. At the end of that letter, he invited her over for dinner. And she decided to go. And she said, what impressed her the most at that first meeting, he didn't share the gospel with me. I knew it and I was ready for it. He didn't invite me to church. I thought that was coming and I was ready for it. But he asked questions about me and then he listened. And it threw me off guard. She would begin to go over to the house regularly for a year and a half. And she said, I knew something changed in my heart when she had a bad experience at, at the university and, and some things happening with her because her views were changing, people outing her and people not liking her. And she was walking to her car and she said, if I could just get to Ken Smith's dinner table, I'll be okay. And then she realized, she realized that may be the only person she has in her life that she actually thinks loves her. She comes to faith in Jesus not by being debated out of her position, by being loved in the middle of it and the door always left open to come home. There's asking and seeking and knocking. There's prayer. She said, he looked across the table at me at our first meeting and said, I admire your uh, stance. I mean, that, how much courage it takes to come here and say the things that you've said. But then he just said, I'm asking you your permission if I can pray for you. I will not do it now if it embarrasses you, but I, me and my wife would like to just pray for you. And he would begin to send her emails about, hey, we're praying for you, how you doing? Been a while since you came back for dinner, why don't you come over again? 
And here is a staunch, I mean, Ivy League, well, I think it's Ivy League, Syracuse. I'm not going to get in that debate. Never mind. So here's, here's a professor of queer theory who is converted because somebody sat with her across the table and gave her hospitality and asked meaningful questions, but listened. Didn't try to engineer condemnation and didn't try to push pearls. They just asked, sought, and knocked. And they went to God and asked, sought, and knocked on her behalf. At the end of the day, it is God that changes people, not us. May we ask ourselves a hard question as the church. May that hard question be this. The world has heard what we have to say. They've heard it. We haven't changed what we're saying for like 2,000 years. Maybe the question is, why do they not trust what we have to say? And that might fall more on us than on them. Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask the prayer team to come. They'll be on each side. Uh, the GP2RL, sorry, I forgot this. Would you put it up? The GP2RL for this week is take some time with these verses from today, asking God to take us deeper together as a church family. I, I, you know, I wanted to change that, but I didn't have time. I, can I challenge you to do something? Can I challenge you? My GP2RL was going to be this. Pray for somebody you're tempted to condemn. Would you just take time to pray for one person that you're tempted to condemn? And just see what God does in your heart and in general. The prayer team's gonna be here for a couple reasons. One, I wanna invite you, if you'd like to repent, if you come to, to realize there's condemnation in your heart. You've not just made distinctions between good and evil, you moved to the final evaluation of people. Then just repent. God will hear you, forgive you, give you grace. But not only that, maybe there's people in your life that you wanna have, take time to knock and seek or ask, seek, and knock God for on their behalf. Well, this prayer team's here. They'd love to do that with you. As we worship, we have communion in the back if you'd like it. The giving stations are back there if you'd like to worship through giving. Um, but we're going to take a moment and just worship together. So if you'll just bear with us. Lord Jesus, we come before you. This is a complicated matter with ins and outs. But what we want to do is first come before you as your people and say, we desire to learn from you on how to love people well in grace and in truth. To be uncompromising on what we know to be, what you've taught us to be, good and evil and holy and unholy and sacred. But Lord, we also want to learn from you on how to help. So may we, Lord, may it start here. Holy Spirit, would you move among us and start in us, please. Remove condemnation from our hearts. Give us wisdom that we might be a true witness of your love, your faithfulness, and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.